I'm on the Metropolitan Branch Trail, a rail trail that mostly parallels the metro train tracks. About half the trail is completed and runs between Union Station and Fort Totten. The other half, between Fort Totten and Silver Spring, is still under construction. I just passed the Fort Totten Metro Station and behind this fence on my right I see some trucks and piles of a grey powdery substance. According to Google Maps, this is the site of a cement supplier. I'm starting to pick up some bad smells, which is always a reminder that I'm by the Fort Totten Trash Transfer Station. I'm now between the Rhode Island Avenue and Noma Metro stations, and there's this huge construction area to my left, where there's all these excavators and trucks. This is one of the asphalt plants that the Fort Myer Construction Corporation operates. Hi, I'm Marcelo Jauregui-Volpe, and this is The Climate Divide, Season 2. I started this episode with that recording on the Metropolitan Branch Trail, which runs alongside the train tracks, to illustrate one very industrial pocket of DC, Ward 5. The trail mostly traverses this ward, which holds roughly half of the industrially zoned land in the district. The industrial land just surpasses 1,000 acres and accounts for about 15% of Ward 5's total area. Why did so much industrial land end up in this ward? The quick answer is railroads. So railroad tracks were laid into the district in the 19th century. That was DC historian Mara Tchaikovsky, who is also the co-founder of the history project Mapping Segregation DC. In 1835, the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad Company completed a train line that went from Baltimore to DC. The line cut through what we know as today's Ward 5. The district's first zoning regulations in the 1920s then defined a lot of what was built surrounding the tracks. They zoned everything around the railroad as, you know, industrial and commercial use, so industrial and warehouses. So Ackington, you see warehouses that are still there today. So anyway, so get all this industrial use in Ward 5 because the railroad ran, the Metropolitan Branch goes like north-south through Ward 5 and the other one goes, you know, along New York Avenue, and then it branches after east, east of Gaidet. So you get like sort of an even bigger industrial area there and warehouse area, all in Ward 5. These construction projects received pushback from communities that live near the railroad. One of these communities was Ivy City. Established in 1873, the neighborhood attracted employees of the nearby railroad, horse racing track, and brick company. In the segregated DC, Ivy City was one of the neighborhoods where black families could settle. Today, black residents account for roughly 70% of the nearly 2,000 people in Ivy City. Some of the developments that Ivy City activists advocated against over the course of the 20th century was commercial zoning and a freeway that would have caused displacement and pollution from the railroad facilities. Today, similar concerns face Ivy City residents. Some days it's like burning tar, burning tires. That smell is cresol, which is a chemical that is part of one of the chemicals they use in their compound for this adhesive that they make. That was Sabrina Rhodes, an Ivy City resident, advisory neighborhood commissioner, and organizer with Empower DC, describing what she smells when walking by the chemical plant operated by National Engineering Products Incorporated. According to the company's website, 
their facility produces a high-pressure sealant called copaltite and supplies the U.S. Navy with them. The plant, located at the end of a residential street, began operating in the 1930s. They've been in Ivy City since the 30s, which was before any air permitting was done, Clean Air, Clean Water Act, Environmental Protection Act. A lot of these laws that were put in place, they were here before that. The U.S. Environmental Protection Agency is partly responsible for enforcing the 1970 Clean Air Act, which Congress established to reduce air pollution. One of the ways the agency carries out this law is through a permitting system that sets human health and safety limits for polluters and holds them accountable. The Environmental Protection Agency has a facility report on the National Engineering Products Plant, and on it, there's no permanent information listed for the Clean Air Act. The report does list the plant as being regulated by the Resource Conservation and Recovery Act, which manages sites that generate hazardous waste. The Department of Energy and Environment's Air Quality Division met with Ivy City residents in 2022 after hearing about their health concerns. DOE didn't know about They had a listening session. This was the Air Quality Division that had this listening session. From there, that's when they realized they needed to come. We did a walkthrough with the Region 3 Administrator, Adam Ortiz, and... Tommy Wells and Kelly Crawford, and it was just, it was really big. It was like 100 people out here. And we did a walkthrough of Ivy City just to have it pointed out about not only the urban heat island effect, but the Cremel site, the chemical plant, the pollution that's coming from New York Avenue, and the distilleries, all these factors that's worsening our air. In July and August of 2022, a few months after the walkthrough, the Department of Energy and Environment had the engineering firm Tetratech test the air in and around the plant. The Department of Energy and Environment presented the results of the 2022 study this past February. The department reported that downwind monitors picked up two chemicals, acetonitrile and formaldehyde. These pollutants were likely coming from the plant and surpassed residential screening levels set by the Environmental Protection Agency. The Environmental Protection Agency warns that formaldehyde is a probable carcinogen. This agency also warns that both short-term and long-term exposure to the chemical can lead to, and I'm quoting here, respiratory symptoms and eye, nose, and throat irritation. In its February presentation, the Department of Energy and Environment didn't make any statements on the health risk posed by the plant, affirming that the residential screening levels are used as indicators on what pollutants to investigate further. The department stated that they'd collaborate with the EPA to carry out more precise testing. During the Q&A portion of the hybrid presentation, attendees expressed frustration as to how the National Engineering Products Plant was able to operate without permits for so long. The Environmental Protection Agency began their testing in Ivy City this past June. According to one of their project documents, the test will occur over eight months and the agency will update residents with midpoint findings in the first quarter of next year. In an email statement to Hola Cultura, National Engineering Products Incorporated says that they are following all DC regulations and that they are working with the Environmental Protection Agency and the Department of Energy and Environment to get an air quality permit, which the company says they didn't know they needed until recently. 
For residents like Rhodes, this wait has been frustrating. Hopefully we'll get the results from EPA sooner than we did from DOE, but yeah. They were just out here for three days and it doesn't account for almost a hundred years of damage that's been done. So we don't want to hear what they didn't find. Earlier this year, the Department of Energy and Environment partnered with the climate tech company Aklima, who employed cars equipped with air quality sensors to produce hyper-local air pollution maps of the Ivy City and Brentwood neighborhoods, as well as Mayfair and Buzzard Point. Aklima published their findings in November. The study found a pollution hotspot along New York Avenue, the northern perimeter of Ivy City. Ivy City residents and grassroots organizations like Empower DC and Namadi have organized a campaign to shut down the chemical plant. While residents wait for conclusive results, one recently introduced DC Council bill hopes to address Ward 5's overly industrialized history. In November, Councilmember Zachary Parker held a press conference in front of the National Engineering Products Facility in Ivy City to introduce the Environmental Justice Amendment Act. Rhodes was one of the many speakers at the event. I had the chance to speak with Councilmember Parker about the bill. The law would require the Department of Energy and Environment to identify overburdened neighborhoods by using the Center for Disease Control's Environmental Justice Index which calculates the cumulative impact environmental injustices have had on communities. This tool ranks census tracts. Ivy City shares tract 88.03 with Gallaudet University and Union Market. And the index gave that area of the district a score of 0.85, which means only 15% of U.S. census tracts experience more cumulative impacts. After adopting that metric, which is how we define overburdened communities, which largely correlate to the blackest and the areas of the city with the lowest incomes, which are wards seven and eight, much of ward five and parts of ward four. It requires DOEE to create a process for how they will evaluate new and existing entities as they are applying for certificates or whatnot. They need to evaluate what impact this new entity, this business, this factory would have on the community's environmental makeup. The bill also hopes to establish an environmental justice division at the Department of Energy and Environment and ensure that these impacts are considered in the city planning. As we are mapping out future developments and going about the functions of government, we would need to take into account the cumulative impact that communities face, because it's not just a matter of what one building or one entity is emitting, for instance, but it's how that contributes with many other entities and factors in a set community. So all that to say, this legislation takes a significant step in holding the government accountable to the clean air, water, and land use in the district. If this bill were to become law, sites like the National Engineering Products Plant would face greater scrutiny, according to Councilmember Parker. How this legislation would impact said facility is 
when that factory would go up for a permit renewal, for instance, they would have to take into account their cumulative impact on the Ivy City community, where we know there are other pollutants. We know there are heat island effects and a host of other factors contributing to environmental safety concerns. And so we think over time it would hold accountable and crack down on these pollutant entities in our communities. The bill had been referred to the Committee on Transportation and the Environment, and Parker hopes it will get a hearing early next year, so it can be included in the upcoming budget meetings for fiscal year 2025. Though, as earlier episodes have touched on this season, shrinking estimates of the D.C. government's budget for the next three fiscal years could make it difficult to fund numerous initiatives. This past fiscal year, you know, obviously the budget has been tighter in last year's and just because of the less revenue being generated, you know, from vacant buildings. And and then I guess, do you have a sense of how challenging it will be to make room for this bill when the funding negotiations start? It's going to be a fight. Every budget is about choices and we are undoubtedly going to have to make tough choices this budget cycle as we have a WMATA crisis brewing as the city is trying to rebound. And there are a number of other priorities that we're working to advance, including a child tax credit that I had proposed earlier this year. That said, we know residents in wards five, seven, and eight and parts of ward four who share the overwhelming majority of overburdened communities deserve clean and healthy communities. And that is the vision and the purpose of my time for, and the purpose of my time here on the council is to ensure we all have access to healthy communities and have a shared quality of life. And we know that's currently not the reality. So. It will be a fight, but I would say there's not a price tag too high to ensure that we ensure neighbors can live in healthy, clean communities. For residents of Ivy City, the future of this chemical plant could lead to an opportunity to create more spaces for the community. You know, let's say there's a world where the, you know, NEP gets shut down and so that facility is is no longer there. They voluntarily just get rid of it. Yeah. Has there been any conversations about what that space can be? Like what you all would want to be there sort of instead? Yeah, something for the community, of course. Definitely. We don't know how much damage is in the soil. So, you know, however it gets cleaned up, because we're going to put that in the universe that is going to be torn down and taken away, however they take it away. We would like that space to be used for the community. An urban garden would be nice. Yeah, urban garden where vegetables are planted and then people can come and pick their own vegetables and stuff. We really would love to have something like that in Ivy City. We just don't know how much damage it has done to that site where we can grow anything edible safely. But if we can't do that, then we would like to have just a community space. Today's episode is the last one of season two. And this developing story is a fitting way to end the season, since many episodes this season have showcased the power of community. Behind many government initiatives lie decades of advocacy. The COP28 United Nations Climate Summit ended two days ago with numerous concerns raised over the insufficient actions taken to phase out fossil fuels. It's easy to feel overwhelmed by these kinds of distant summits tackling global warming. But what this podcast has taught me 
is that there are likely numerous environmental justice concerns just blocks away from where you live. Maybe it's illegal dumping, or a park in desperate need of renovation, or a clogged storm drain causing street flooding. Regardless of what it is, there are numerous histories and patterns of environmental injustices that need attention. And Hola Cultura will continue reporting on these important issues. We'll be back next year, but for now, I just wanted to thank you all for listening to this podcast. See you soon. The Climate Divide is produced and edited by me. Claudia Peralta Torres provided additional editing and sound mixing support. Christine McDonald is a series editor and executive director of Hola Cultura. Members of the society and culture team in Hola Cultura's storytelling program for experiential learning also contribute to this podcast. This project is supported by Spotlight DC and the Pulitzer Center.